Hello, happy Friday, or whatever day it is, I guess, when you're listening to this, and welcome to another episode of the 100% Wild Podcast. And today in the show, Matt and I are joined by Cuz Strickland, and we're answering a listener submitted question about planting food plots on land that you don't actually own. Uh, so we end up talking about ways to get permission from a landowner, how to do something like this on ground maybe that you lease or get permission on, uh, how to approach a farmer about leaving crops standing, and all sorts of stuff like that. So all in all, I think it, you know, I think we covered some interesting things, especially if you're a guy like me who doesn't own land. So that said, before we get to that interview, though, I actually want to ask for two quick favors from you, two quick updates here. So first, when Matt and I launched uh, this podcast last year, you know, I had two main goals with this change. First, I wanted to provide a podcast in a different format than what I was already doing with Wired Hunt, in which you know we could tackle this specific audience question and do it in like a quick, to-the-point fashion. And then secondly, I wanted to try to bring some new perspectives in addition to my own by pulling in the guys from Drury Outdoors. And as you know, many of the Drury Outdoors team members, they hunt managed properties or in some of these great Midwestern states. Uh, but I, on the other hand, I hunt mostly smaller properties, mostly by permission. And I spend a lot of time hunting in, you know, the state, the super pressure state of Michigan. So I thought it would be really interesting to bring together these two different hunting perspectives um, and create a unique dynamic, I thought, between what I have experienced and seen and with what they've experienced and seen. And I think for the most part, we've been able to achieve that. But at the same time, uh, Matt and I have really been cognizant of, you know, knowing that there's ways that we can improve and trying to figure out what those ways that we can improve this podcast are. So, you know, last summer we asked for some feedback. We got a lot of great feedback, a lot of good suggestions, and we made some changes based on what we heard. But I just want to let you guys know that, you know, we'd love to continue hearing feedback. Um, you know, we want to keep on evolving. We want to keep making this even more helpful for you. So if you happen to have a few extra minutes to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, letting us know what you're liking or letting us know some suggestions you might have, um, any anything like that would be super helpful. And it, of course, you know, those ratings and reviews also help, you know, put this podcast out there in front of more people, which is which is awesome if you're if you'd be willing and interested in doing that. And then finally, you know, I just want to let you know that we really appreciate you listening. And, you know, it means a lot that you take time to listen to this podcast or the Wired Hunt podcast. So so thank you for that. Moving on, the one other favor I had to ask was that we'd like some more questions from you, some more questions specifically in regards to off-season related topics. Um, we'd love to start talking about some different spring things coming up or early summer as the calendar starts flipping that way. So if you want to go over to wiredtohunt.com slash 100% wild, and that's 100, the number, 100, and then the words, percent wild. Wiredhunt.com slash 100% wild, and you'll see instructions for exactly how to submit your question. And big thanks to those of you that have already done that. Hopefully, we've been able to answer those and help you out. So, with all of that out of the way, I do want to kick us back over now to our interview with Cuz Strickland. I think you're going to enjoy this one, and thank you for listening. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the 100% Wild Podcast. I'm Mark Kenyon over here with Wired to Hunt, and over on the Drury Outdoor side is my good pal, Matt Drury. How are you, Matt? Good, buddy. What's up? What's up? It's been, oh, about a week or so yeah. since we did one of these. It's good to catch up. Been a little while, yeah. I've been been cranking out some new projects over here, stuck in my dungeon uh, in my, my home office, so it's nice to actually get to talk to a real person right now, so I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> I, well, you know, I just spent uh, about four days in Nashville for the uh, National Wild Turkey Federation's national convention. They have it every there, yeah. every year there in Opryland in Nashville, and um, 
you know, we get to hang out with a lot of the consumers. Um, and, and probably I heard more about the podcast at that one event than I've had since we've started doing it. So it was refreshing to kind of get some good feedback from people listening to it. And a lot of people loving what we're doing and, and, um, had some good input. So, uh, it was great to hear that. And, and ultimately, you know, the, the guest for today, uh, we got to hang out together there at, uh, the Moss, Moss Yoke booth. Uh, it's, it's Ronnie Cuz Strickland, longtime friend of Drury Outdoors. How you guys doing? Hey, I appreciate the invite. And, uh, I, I, I told you not long ago, you know, the National Wild Turkey Federation is actually like one of the largest deer membership groups in the world because man mark and terry and matt came into our booth and the subject matter immediately changed from turkeys to deer that was fun <laughs> to see but yeah that's a that's a big show i was glad to be there i'm honored to be there all the time it's absolutely a beast Do of you- the show because the consumers are, are just the relentless it's like i don't know how many people were there but it was packed well that's what i was going to ask you i I've, I've heard numbers but i i don't know what the actual final number was but i know this like saturday you could not walk through the aisles and they said uh that there's something like 160 or 170 vendors i think that's what they said that are on the waiting list to get into that show and 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 have a booth in that show. So it's, I mean, it, it is a cool event. If as a consumer, if you ever wanted to go, you know, bring your family down, like the Opryland in general is just beautiful and you never have to leave the premises and all these cool things with not just turkey hunting, but all hunting uh, are involved in it. And it, it's, it's a very neat show to go to. Probably my favorite of all the shows we attend. No doubt about it. Uh, a unique thing about it too is uh, you're talking about family, you'll see more kids little kids, teenage kids at that show than you will at any other show. And I personally love that. And I know you guys do too as well. Yeah. So one thing that, uh, before, you know, Mark and I kind of do our deal and get into the question of the day, I did want to ask you, you know, when we ran into you at the shot show in Vegas this year in January, you had, uh, talked to us about a new organization that you're kind of instrumental in helping to get off the ground and and raise some awareness for so i wanted to give you a chance to kind of give our listeners a little background on it because me personally i feel like all the hunters that i know all the conservationists that i know they are huge supporters of this cause and now there's something we can all get behind so why, why don't you share that with us a little bit well, bless you for bringing it up. I could tell it meant something to you and Mark and Terry as well, but it's called SOL, S-O-L-E, which is an acronym for Sportsman Organized for Law Enforcement. And, uh, you know, we, we've done stuff, tons of stuff. Y'all have too. Y'all are big into Catch a Dream. We all kind of do our share. And we've been really deeply involved with the military for a long time, but not a lot of attention paid to, to law enforcement. And uh, what we've done is we picked out three groups that are already in place. They already have their 5013Cs, COPS, which is Concern of Police Survivors, and they kind of step in when someone loses a family member in in law enforcement. Spirit of Blue, which is a group that uh, buys equipment, and you'd be stunned how much equipment police officers and sheriffs and stuff like that have to buy on their own, including tourniquets and body armor. It's crazy. And the other one's Below 100, which is uh, a company that, that goes in and offers training at no charge to smaller precincts and stuff, defensive driving, all that. These people have everything 
there in place, what they don't have is a lot of money. So we're trying to raise money for those three. And Soul is just kind of a marketing arm for that. All the money we raise goes to uh, a group in Tupelo called Create Foundation, which handles all our 5013C stuff. All the money goes to the Create Foundation, and once a quarter, they split it out in thirds. One third here, one third there, one third there. We never see it, never touch it. And we're very excited about it. We've got our governor, the great Phil Bryant's involved because he's former law enforcement. We auctioned off a hunt at the NWTF, kept all the money, and they they let us do that. We raised $7,500. We're uh, auctioned off a hunt for two people down in Florida with Cypress Roost Outfitters, and the guy that owns that is a is in law enforcement. His dad was. So it's, a, it's kind of a family that law enforcement is, but... Man, the, when you guys put it live at the SHOT Show, the, the website, we have a website, soulamerica.org. The website traffic went through the roof. So God bless you guys for helping us with that. Good. We like to hear that. It's, awesome. it's something that, you know, with, with us, Coondog's always kind of been our representative of law enforcement for Jury Outdoors. And it's um, just to kind of hear his take personally on how law enforcement's kind of been treated in the last couple of years here. Uh, it's, it's sad to hear it. So we're happy to get behind it and help you out and uh, hopefully drive some people to that website and donate, you know, any $5, $10, whatever, and, and help raise some funds for something that's a worthy cause. Yeah, we appreciate it. 100% does go to that. Well, like I say, we're using the Create Foundation. We pay any fees they have and stuff. So every penny's going to those people and you know I, I called them all and told them hey we raised seventy five hundred dollars and their reaction was you just have no idea how far that money will go so their budgets are pretty limited and, and i think it's uh it's time you said earlier that you know the way things are in the country right now this is a good time and so we're going to continue to push and strive i had some great people come by the booth uh uh lit coolers that guy's former law enforcement winchester uh, got a call from Buck Nye, so it's starting to get a little traction. Good, good deal. That's what we want to do. We want to help out as much as we can. That's great. I was just going to ask, cause what what kinds of things do you have planned as far as you know fundraising efforts or events or anything like that? Is there anything that we should be keeping an eye out to possibly get involved with uh, in the future? Yeah. Well, well, first thing we're going to do is the governor, bless his heart, the great Phil Bryan. He's offered up the uh, governor's mansion or a fundraiser down there and he'll kind of handle that. But you know, what I'm wanting to do is something that's uh, perpetual keeps bringing, I got a meeting tomorrow with a guy from lit coolers and uh, he's already said he wants to do a mossy oak lit cooler with the soul logo on it and have the proceeds of that go directly into soul. Uh, Winchester's thinking about doing a box of ammo, maybe nine millimeter or 40 cal, whatever it is with the soul logo. So what I want people to do more than anything is to look for that logo. Go to the soulamerica.org, check out that. And uh, like I said, like Matt said, make a donation. But, you know, the first fundraisers right now are kind of underway and are small. So what I want to do right now, what they can help with more than anything, is do what Matt's doing, and that's tell people about it. Good Very deal. Good. We'll certainly help and do our part. Yeah, that's awesome. So do we want do we want to shift over to talking a little bit of deer here because even though it's even though it's February I know that myself and you guys I'm sure are are still have have whitetails heavily on the mind right 
That's right. It never leaves the mind, right? That's no. the problem. That's part of being a gamekeeper. Uh, just never, it never stops. <laughs> it does. That's that's the truth. All part, you know, and, and I can promise you, Matt and uh, Mark and Terry, they they get as much enjoyment right now out of being in the seat of a tractor as they do being in the seat of a hang-on deer stand. And I'm the same way, and it is 12 months. It's it, it has to be 12 months a year if you want to get it anywhere near the level that Mark and Terry do for a big deer. And in my case, my goal is strictly a target-rich environment. And uh, so it, it's 12 months, no doubt. Speaking of tractors, Matt, we've got a question today related to that. Do we want to jump into that? Absolutely. Hi, guys. This is David here, Wichita, Kansas. My question for you guys, I have at least, it has half an ag and almost half in timber. There's a small portion of the lease that the farmer does not um, use for ag. I would like to start putting food plots in those area. My question, how would you go to the farmer and ask him to allow me to plant food plots without him being scared that it's going to affect growing more deer into the area and he would be scared his crops would be in more danger. Thanks for your time. That's a great question. You want Matt to go first or you want me to go first? Yeah, I mean, real quick, I, I you know, I honestly, like my experience with most of the farmers that we've dealt with, they're all, you know, they're great guys. They not always do they understand what we're trying to do from a deer, you know, and a herd management standpoint. I think that's usually the disconnect, you know, if they have cattle or whatever, like they're not always necessarily worried about what the herd's doing. Like he referenced right there, you know, are they going to be worried that, you know, by putting in food plots, you're going to be bringing more deer. But I think you could almost counter that argument with, well, if you're putting putting in food plots, you're going to um, de- redirect deer in a different direction and, and, and maybe help some of the crop damage that you're incurring. I, you know, what do you think, cuz? Yeah, absolutely. If the guys, if the guys really let you hunt there to keep the deer damage, the crop damage down, well, there's no better way to do it than centering around a food plot. I mean, we've kind of all gotten used to hunting around food plots. We do that to hold the deer, but it's also, you know, like it for a better term, it's the killing spot. That's where you do it. Number two, anytime you're working that ground and growing a crop, you're doing it right. You're, you're, you're taking care of that ground. You're putting more fertilizer in it. You're, you're keeping it managed. So it's, if, you know, down the road, if you, if he wants to go back in there and row crop, man, you've done him a favor. You're turning all that old stuff up uh, back into the ground. You fertilize it. You're checking the pH. You're getting all those soil samples. So there's no doubt it's better for him. It's certainly better for whoever's hunting it. You know, because like it is, it's going to draw the deer away from the crops into that. That's the best place to kill them. But also, you're kind of being a gamekeeper for him, in my opinion. Have you ever had to do something like this, cuz, where you had to work with another landowner, whether it be in a lease or early on when you didn't have your own land, where you actually had to try to talk to somebody about else about what you were wanting to do and convincing them that it's okay to do that? Oh, absolutely. You know, I don't, I don't have a really big farm. My farm's about... 300 acres, a little bit bigger than that, and I lease about 350 acres, so I got about 700, but I'm constantly dealing with landowners, and I'll, you know, the best way to do it is call them and say, look, here's what I want to do, 
now I'll, I kind of draw the line, and they normally will too, on uh, you know cutting down big trees. I don't do that kind of stuff, but there's nice little openings in there. I was like, look, we got to get in there and mow that just that that terrible vetch and that brush down. Let me plant a food plot down there. It's going to keep the deer away from you. Landowners, as long as they think they know what you're doing, they're usually all about it. And uh, I've never had anything but good results working with landowners. Now, the guys around me, most of them are row crop guys, professional, big-time farmers. So they can weed through uh, any BS that's going on. But they, uh, most of them are hunters. They're all outdoor kind of guys. And I think they want to see you succeed. And if they know you're harvesting deer, you know, the, 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 your conversation's already starting out at a, at, a, at a bright spot. But, yeah, I have no qualms, uh, you know, approaching a landowner and telling them, this is what I'd like to do. What do you think? Mark, what kind of experience have, have you had up in Michigan with this? Because I'm sure that you've dealt with this a time or two. Yeah, yeah. You know me, usually being the being the poor young guy, I don't own any land or have anything big and fancy where I can do this. So it's always been trying to get permission to do it on somebody else's land. And I've had good luck with it. Um, two different properties I've been able to do this. And for me, a couple couple things kind of came in. Uh, came in handy. Number one, I made sure you know that I had a simple explanation plan. Like I wasn't like I was just showing up at the farmer's door and saying, "Hey, I want to plant a food plot." And then he's like, "Well, what's that? Or why? Or how are you going to do that?" I made sure that I explained what I was doing, when I was thinking about doing it, what type of equipment I might be using, you know, how I could go about doing it without damaging his crops or his land in any way, so that you know you could answer all those questions right out of the gate. Because inevitably, he's going to have he or her will have some questions. Um, another thing I did. Early on was I started small, so rather than saying, hey, I want to plant a two and a half acre food plot, you know, I just wanted to kind of ease them in. So it was, hey, I've got, there's a little eighth acre, quarter acre section over here I thought I could try food plot, um, and I think that's a lot easier pill to swallow. They can handle a small change like that and then get a feel for, you know, how you'll operate, how respectful you'll be of their property, um, what exactly is going to be, you know, involved in all this. And then once you can prove in that first instance that, hey, this is a good thing, I'm not going to damage your property. We're going to do this in the right kind of way. If you can show them that with your actions, then you're much more likely to be able to plant an acre or two acres or three acres or whatever might be available in the future. Um, so that was something I did too. And then I think you know the, the final thing that's very important, especially when you're either working on someone else's property that you lease or that they've given you permission, probably the very most important thing about this whole process is making sure that after you get permission, you handle that responsibility responsibility the right way so being respectful of his property his or her property being respectful of how you access the property being careful about what you're doing and, and always thinking about you know the fact that this isn't your ground and you need to keep their um you know their desires in mind too so i think if you can do those things you got a great chance of, uh, of being able to plant a food plot being able to improve your deer hunting and doing it in a way that keeps the landowner happy and, and knock on wood that's worked out well for me too so uh, yeah that's a really good point. I mean, I know in in my situation, I text back and forth with, with the farmer for my lease all the time. And it kind of goes both ways. He's, you know, it didn't always start out that way. And, and they would maybe do something that, you know, was kind of right in the middle of the season that was kind of would maybe mess up, you know, what our plans were. And, and we've kind of just evolved our relationship to where now anytime that I'm, I'm going to be in there or doing something, I give him a heads up. 
are if um, he's going to be moving his cattle from one end of the farm to the other, he tries to give me a heads up. This year, you know, I, I paid to leave some standing corn up near one of my box blinds, and he would go in, you know, and he came in three different times and mowed that, you know, corn over during the season for me and brush hogged it or whatever, and there was some standing corn left. And at the end of the season, maybe two weeks after the season was over, he asked, hey, can I go in there and, and, and brush hog that so I can turn the dirt? You know, ideally, would I leave that? Yes, I would have left it, you know, just to, to I would have left it the rest of the you know winter. But I have to be cognizant of the fact that he's working with me. I got to work with him as well and, and kind of, you know, it's that olive branch, so to speak. And you got to be respectful of the fact that they're trying to, I mean, this is their living they're trying to make a living doing, you know, whether it's, you know, a row cropper like Cusset or it's a, a cattle farmer or whatever. So if you're trying to lease something and, and ultimately it's their business, you know, their land is their business, you got to be cognizant of the fact that not always are you going to be able to do what you want to do. Um, yeah. But if you have a good relationship and you're always open and, and out front of what you're trying to do, you know, that's usually, in my experience, the best thing that always happens is when I run into the farmer yeah. on the farm, when I go up to hunt or when I go up to shed hunt or whatever the case may be, running into them and just spending time talking to them, that's always been the most beneficial for me than, than you know, just texting him or whatever. That face-to-face -face time is very valuable. Yeah, the relationship is, is key for anything like this. And for me, naturally, I actually um, have a tendency of like wanting to avoid small talk and stuff. I'm usually just want to go do my thing and I can be, you know, that kind of solitary introvert at times, but I always need to remind myself of how important this is. And, and so now I try to make, I try to make an effort every time I stop by the property to do something hunting related, always stop in, say hi, talk with a landowner, you know, get to know them better, help them get to know you a little better. And even though, you know, if I'm busy or there's a lot going on, it's always worthwhile in the end. I'm always glad I did it um, because, you know, they're, they're doing you a, a tremendous service by allowing you to hunt on their property. It's a great gift. So uh, you cannot fail to appreciate that. So establishing only, that relationship. So yeah, cool. not only that, but you tend to usually learn quite a bit from yeah. them. They, you know, they're on their property all the time. So they might know where they've been seeing deer or that they, there's a few coyotes in the area or whatever. Like you, every time you talk to them, you're going to pick up something in the season, even when they're getting ready to go cut the crops or, you know, harvest their crops or whatever, like just learning that from them is invaluable. So it's something that, uh, long time ago, one of our, one of dad's best friends is, we call him Yapper, Mike Joggers. He's been on our team like 25, 30 years. And he, he told me that he's like, anytime you can run into a landowner, take the time to stop and talk to him because you never know what you'll learn. Yeah. You know, something else you mentioned offhand, Matt, that I think is, is something worth mentioning here for someone who wants to plant a food plot or wants to try to get some more food on the property. If for some reason you don't think you can plant a food plot, Another option is to do what you did this past year, Matt, which is just talk to the farmer about buying some of the standing crop and leaving that standing. Um, sure. Can you tell us a little bit about how you initiated that and how you were able to make that work? I know there, like you mentioned, a few challenges, um, but it seems like that's a great option for some people um, if there's not additional places to plant food. Yeah, and I'm sure Cuz has a lot of input here too. But basically, I mean, when they got, you know, they got the crops that you're looking for in a lot of instances. It's nice to have the green food source, you know. And, and Mark and Terry always talk about that green to grain transfer, and, and they're the food plot kings and food plot architecture kings. But ultimately, late season, 
<laughs> a good thing to have is corn or beans. And that's typically in our area in the Midwest, what those farmers are planting. So, um, if I can buy an acre or two acres from them and, and let them leave it standing and then work with them to come in and, and, and brush hog it when I need them to, or are in the beans stand, you know, just leave them standing all year, you know, that's invaluable because that's a crop that I'm not going to, you know, on my end, I'm not going to be able to plant it. I don't have the farming equipment. I don't have the know-how. So they're already doing the, the hard work for you. And there's nobody better at putting up a good crop than a farmer. So let him do his work and you kind of reap the benefits. And you all you got to do when I initiate it, I just, I just ask him, hey, would you ever be interested? I'd pay the fair market value for what you would have received for that crop. If, if you're interested in doing that, I would love to pay to leave it. And it, you know, I think it, I t- it paid like maybe 700 and something dollars this year. And I know you have your lease cost and that's a cost on top of it. It's like hunting's the most expensive hobby in the world. <laughs> yeah. like, like everybody always talks about, I do it for the meat and I do it. It's the most expensive like uh, filet you'll ever have because <laughs> it never stops. But uh, that's the way I approach it. What about you, cuz? Well, you know, first off, you and Mark both, y'all need to take this and turn it into a DVD and entitle it, How to Deal with Landowners. Both <laughs> answers were uh, just made me proud. That, that's exactly how you deal with the landowner. Yeah, leaving the, the, some uh, standing beans, standing corn, that's, you know what it does, especially when it gets cold. Now, it doesn't often get really, really cold down here, but I've seen it work. Uh, the key to that is don't ask for too much because they do. They, at some point, they want to mow that down and get that dirt turned so it can start deteriorating and turning back into all those nutrients. But I do the same thing. I got a guy, and I was lucky because I had a, a big field right next to a farmer, soybean field, and I said, dude, you're welcome to come farm this. I won't charge you a penny. Leave me three acres down there in the southwest corner. Of course, he jumped all over that. Same thing, though. He's like, he called like in the uh, middle of January, and he said, Man, uh, could I come mow those three acres down? I said, hey, give me two more weeks. And since I own the land, it was no big deal. But don't ask for a whole lot. And just like you heard uh, Matt say, I left the standing corn right up by my shooting house. That's the way to do it. Small pieces right up by the shooting house. And look, send the guy pictures. Tell him, look, when you left that standing corn there, look what happened. My grandkid killed the thing right there. Whatever it is kind of make him feel part of it. One thing I've always done is I'm I'm kind of a venison nut and I try to do experiments. And if I hit something that's really good, like really good smoked sausage, and this year it was burritos, I I called him up and said, where are you going to be, man? Meet me up there. I got a nice chest full of something for you. You take him those burritos or that smoked sausage that's not gamey. All of a sudden you're partners. You know, they love that kind of stuff. And you're right, you cannot do enough for that landowner because the fact he's letting you do that, man, you can't put a price on that. I'm going to have to come down there for some of that burrito. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're unbelievable. I, it's one of the few things down here that uh, you can serve people. He does. I got a guy that helps. He does burritos and tamales. And you can serve that. Nobody ever knows it's venison. Yeah. You may tell them it is when it's over with. But some people have in their mind they're not going to eat wild game because they had it one time and it was bad. And that was all in preparation. But, yeah. you know, venison is uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a, the golden offering for me. And uh, if I can make them part of that, 
uh, first thing you know, you land on a buddy's calling, man, you got any more than burritos? Yeah. <laughs> so, but the land, man, the dirt, hadn't been able to hunt that dirt. That's a special, special relationship. How much time do you put in to your place, to your, your farms, your lease? Like, I mean, you know, you always hear it's a 365 uh, type of th- thing, but what, how much effort, how much time are you there at your place? Well, I, I, it's going to probably be similar to what you get to do. I don't know if I, I don't know how much time Mark and Terry has to do, but my schedule is pretty crazy. I've kind of, you know, transferred into the mascot role for Mossy Oak, so I still do a good bit of traveling. But every time I, I do, and my wife made me do this, I have old school handwritten calendars out, and I will, I know when I need to mow down my corn and turn that dirt, I'm going to set days for that. And that's coming up pretty quick. And I know when I need to do this. I know I know when I need to make sure I gotta get this done and get that done. And I make time for it because you can't get behind when you're trying to, you know, form a cover crop or when you're planting clover or when you're gonna spray or do this kind. So I, I spend a lot of time, but I have to actually calendar it in sometime and say, Man, I gotta do this and that week. Don't put me anything down for this, but it's all a, a labor of love. I told, I made the comment the other day, and my farm's not really big. It's kind of small, but the fact that I can just go down there and go hunting without asking somebody is overwhelming. And, uh, you know, I'm not rich by any spec, but I, you know, I, I worked and worked and worked and got a very small place and worked it. And then I sold it at a profit because they ain't making that dirt anymore. And I kind of worked my way up. And I tell guys all the time, dude, buy buy one acre and take care of it and then sell it and buy 10 acres and sell that and buy, you know, work your way up. Because if you just get that little one acre and you can go do your food plot, put your trail cameras out, there's there's nothing like that. It, that's exactly how Mark and Terry started. I mean, and everybody sees, you know, because our visibility is so much higher now than it was in the 90s and in the late 90s and early 2000s, I mean, we, we did our first TV show in 2003. Of course, we started back in 89. And we did our, our first show for you guys, for a wildlife obsession, a wildlife obsession for Biologic and Mossy Oak. And the visibility became much higher at that point. But Mark and Terry, I mean, they started out just like anybody else. They were leasing. And they, they used to hunt a little uh, uh, hunting club in our hometown of Bloomsdale called 40 Acre Club. And, you know, it's it's – I think – to look at them and look at guys like you and, and friends that I know that have land, like it's the ultimate dream for me. I want, and I've talked about it more and more with my wife lately. And I, I know Mark Kenyon, I'm speaking for you, but I mean, I think it's every hunter's ultimate dream is to have a piece of dirt that you call your own. Yeah. And I, you know, I've witnessed dad, he's real strict about his place and Mark is too. And at first I didn't understand it when I was, you know, coming out of college and it's like, Hey, let's just invite so-and-so up or let's, you know, let's do this. And they're real particular. They're real particular about a lot of things in life. But I think that's what, you know, the more and more that I work just this lease and get to experience it firsthand, it's like you become possessive of it because you put so much time and effort into it and to own your own piece of dirt. You know, I just on Facebook, uh, late last one of our team members, Dave Kramer, he posted up this this post, and he had a trespasser 
on his place looking for sheds. The guy in a 60 degree weather day, he was completely camoed. He had a face mask on and he had a backpack that was full. And he walked Jeez. past a bunch of cameras on Dave's place. And he's lucky he didn't steal them. But Dave put all these pictures up and he said, hey, I need help finding this guy. And I was surprised at some of the feedback from some of the people that replied like, Hey, you know, it happens. It's, it's, he's not stealing really. If he's, if he's just poaching shed antlers, it's like he's trespassing. And Dave had a pretty poignant comment back to one of these guys that said, Hey, you know, I've worked my tail off my whole life. I just bought this piece, my first piece ever, you know, for thousands of dollars. And everything I do and I spend thousands more every year working on it. Like he's on my piece of property. He's stealing those sheds. And overwhelmingly most people agreed with that. And it's just, that's the mentality. I think, you know, it kind of boils back down to our point here that you need to respect that landowner. And ultimately his decision is going to be, it is what it is. The best thing you can do is have a good relationship with him because he's put a lot of time and money into his piece, no matter how big it was. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. You know, and, and, and I, I tell people all the time, you don't have to have a big piece of land. It can be very small. Like I say, I started with a real small vacant lot kind of piece of land and just learned how to flip, learn how to flip. Guys who have that mentality like no, nothing's going to get in my way, they will end up with a piece of property somewhere. And then you got some people who just rather sit back and complain and I mean, that's just human nature. But the guys end up buying, you know, one, 10, five, 50, 100 acres. They know exactly what you're talking about. And then they become the landowner. And once you become that guy, you really know how to tweak your relationships with landowners because the bottom line is they're the key to everything we do. You know, hunters, people that, you know, we're trying to recruit more hunters and we're trying to. Uh, grow what we do and everything and I, I don't never call it a sport I call it an instinct like Gene and Barry Wenzel did but we're not in competition with uh, Xboxes and this and that what we're in competition with is clocks and calendars because people are so busy what we got to do and that's why we need landowners because they're close to town we need to make it easier for hunters to have a place close to town down here, we have a lot of hunting clubs, a lot of lease land. And if you have that close to your home, you're going to spend more time there. So that's what we're fighting is kind of the clock and the calendar because mom don't necessarily want us to go do that. She may want to go do that. So, man, landowners are the key to everything. Very true. I, I, would, add, I would add one more thing kind of circling back to the beginning here when it comes to asking this permission of the landowner. And that is related to what you mentioned a little bit ago, being the fact that given how busy we are, given how many different obligations we all have, the fact that you use you know a handwritten calendar still and mark off dates to go take care of your food plots or whatever, I would recommend people do that to ask for permission for this type of thing, because you don't want to be asking for permission to plant you know a food plot in August, the day or five days before you actually want to go plant it. Um, you want to be asking them well ahead of time so that you can have those conversations and they don't the landowner doesn't feel pressured like you're going to start doing this right away. So I think right now is a great time to start asking that question because whether you want to plant a late spring food plot or if you're going to plant it late in the summer, this gives them plenty of time to think about it for you to have multiple conversations if needed, and it's just kind of set them at ease. So make sure you're doing that now, not Yeah, 
Yeah, Mark, that's kind of a similar situation with my spot. Every year when we re-sign the lease, uh, it, we work with hunting lease networks, and we actually have to – the landowner submits their plan for the year as to what they plan on doing with the property in case they're making any huge changes or they're doing timber – you know, they're timbering the, the piece or whatever. Like they have to let us know and vice versa. We let them know uh, if we have any big plans to change our food plot structure or add a new ground blind or box blind or whatever the case may be. So just kind of back to your point, letting them know early – you know, that, that alleviates a lot of issues. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. And I guess, I guess with that, Matt, is there anything else we need to cover or should we wrap this up? I don't know. I think we, we got in great detail here. Cause how about you? No, look, I'm, I'm so fired up listening to you guys answers because y'all are so dialed in and, uh, being the old guy hearing what you people are saying right there at your age just makes me, uh, swell up with pride. I just know the, it makes me feel like hunting's in good hands, to be honest with you, because, you know, respect, ethics, all that, that's what's going to carry us forward, and uh, you guys are dialed in. Well, we've had some good teachers, so that's, <laughs> that's where it started. Yeah. Well, thank you, Cuz, so much for joining us for this. It's been a blast. Well, thanks for having me. I look forward to doing it again. And Matt, before we close her down, I just want to leave our listeners and viewers with, with one quick reminder on my end, which is just to submit your questions. We'd love to answer more questions related to this kind of stuff, off-season work, uh, anything leading to the spring and summer, because that's all coming up here quick, too. So you can go to wiredtohunt.com slash 100% wild to submit your questions. And then make sure you subscribe to the podcast to get the audio version over on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can follow all my other things over at wiredtohunt.com. And Matt, what do you have? As always, you can watch the video version of this podcast at the Drury Outdoors YouTube page and check out while you're there all the stuff we're doing on DOD TV. We're trying to put up two original hunts, never never seen before hunts every week. We got the guys here in the studio hard at it, uh, kind of replacing what we used to do on our DVDs. So it's interesting. A lot of these hunts have never been seen anywhere before. So that's new. That's cool. And uh, I want to thank everybody that has reached out to me uh, from listening to the podcast. I've gotten so many submissions to join our Jury Outdoors team. Nice. And uh, it's been fun uh, getting to see what everybody's sent in. And, and it just shows me kind of to Cuz's point, you know, there's a lot of people uh, doing it the right way out there. And, it, and it's just so enjoyable to get to meet and, and talk with these people and see what everybody does on their own home, t- home turf. And so thank you very much. And um, realistically, other than that, just make sure and follow us on all of our social platforms. We try to come at you every day with new, fresh content. And uh, we're ramping it up even more in 2017. Awesome. Well, thank you, Matt. Thank you, Cuz. And thank you, everybody, for listening and, and watching us today. All right. See ya.